You are listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law, plain talk about intellectual property. Please welcome your host, Leticia Caminero. Hello from Washington, D.C. This is episode nine. Today, we will go beyond what intellectual property laws establish, and we will talk about biopolitics. We will navigate the book, The Biopolitics of Intellectual Property, Regulation, Innovation, and Personhood in the Information Age. Today, we have the great pleasure of talking with the director of the Center for Professional and Applied Ethics, professor of philosophy and public policy, and affiliate faculty School of Data Science at UNC Charlotte. My name is Gordon Hull. I'm a professor of philosophy and public policy at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, where I've been for the last 12 years or so. Uh, my work is primarily at the intersection of three things. There's political theory and to some extent moral theory, uh, law, primarily intellectual property, privacy, things like that, and then technology. Uh, the technology work, I get a lot from science and technology studies, but also sort of more traditional work and philosophy. Let's start from the beginning. What is biopolitics and what is the relationship with IP? Right. So the, the project of this book is basically to use biopolitics as a theory to talk about intellectual property. Uh, biopolitics is a concept that I draw from French theory. Uh, Michel Foucault in the late 1970s developed it over the course, well, mid-late 70s, developed it over the course of some lectures. And he was using it as a way to think about power and how power operates in society. Uh, so we start with a basic point. We say a lot is power. Uh, but then if you think from it, you can realize that power doesn't always mean the same thing. Because uh, in example, he started this really famous book, Discipline and Punish, with a scene of execution. And some poor guy is being dragged up to the gallows. They have built various devices to literally rip him to pieces. Uh, those devices are custom-made for the occasion. And the event is both watched and then reported in local newspapers, the entire sort of drawn-out uh, execution, right? Uh, and then you sort of think about, well, how do we execute people now? First of all, we don't very often. Secondly, we have court cases about whether lethal injection is too painful. Uh, so you can say whatever you want, right, about execution as a, as, a, as a political punishment, but it's pretty clear that there's a different understanding of what the penalty is, right, and what it does. Right? Our, if the goal is simply to kill the person, then the kind of torture spectacle is clearly overkill. Now, on the other hand, the goal is to make a point, then the way we privatize it or hide it uh, and say it's not supposed to be painful seems to miss that, though. So Foucault looks at the difference between various forms of punishment and notices and theorizes this idea that as a social function, power doesn't always work in the same way. He then defines a couple of different notions of power, different social organizations of power. The first one he calls sovereign power, and this is sort of the traditional monarch. The main thing the king can do is either kill you 
or leave you alone, right? So Foucault calls this the power to kill or let live. The modern form of power, which is exemplified in what he calls disciplinary power, involves the ability to sort of channel or productively manage life. The textbook example, again, this is the part of Foucault that's probably most taken up in American theory, is the prison. Uh, and the prison, the modern prison functions on the model of what it takes from Jeremy Bentham as the panopticon. And the idea there is that you're always visible. You can always be seen by someone. Uh, and there's a sort of graphic image of a circular prison. There is a guard tower in the middle with a bunch of fancy one-way mirrors. And then those guards can always see into the cells, which are sort of arranged in a circle around it. And the idea, the theory of punishment then, is that, well, the prisoner will learn to modify his behavior because he knows he's always at least potentially being watched and there's tiny little rewards and tiny little punishments for behaving in the right or wrong way. Given that, there's within biopower, within disciplinary power, then two sort of further regimes that he identifies. One of those is a sort of what do you call it, a a politics of the body, right? This is where you take the prisoner and get him to modify, you know, his time of waking up, the way he walks and that sort of thing. The other is the one that Foucault calls biopolitics, and that one's about how do we manage entire populations of people? It shows up with the rise of statistics, concern with mortality rates, death rates, and so on. And the idea is that if you can somehow work with entire populations, you can improve their productivity, their health, and their lives in general. And that's something you don't really see traditional, you know, kings trying to do. But the king is interested in the tithe, or the king is interested in whatever the peasant provides him, but the king is not going to have a program of universal vaccination. All right, so that's the basic model. Uh, what I would try to do then is apply that thinking to an understanding of how intellectual property functions in an American legal context. And the argument is that starting in the 1700s or so, with the rise of biopolitics, there's a sort of public form of biopolitics where the goal is to improve the public welfare generally conceived. Think about vaccine programs, public health, sanitation, compulsory education even, uh, even John Stuart Mill, who's sort of hardcore market, you know, laissez-faire libertarian in some ways, says, look, we need to use public money to promote science. Early intellectual property, at least here, I think, follows that model pretty well. In the last 30, 40 years or so, we're developing a more privatized or neoliberal version of that model where the focus is much less on public good than it is on incentivizing private market actors to do things for their own good uh, and then reap the rewards for that. And so that I divide the sort of the power schema in the three ways of the traditional kind of juridical form of power, which we'd associate with sovereign power, a public biopolitics, which is where IP is most sort of at home, and then the new neoliberal phase. The argument of the book is that we're transitioning from the public biopolitics phase to the neoliberal one, broadly conceived, but you can use that heuristic to understand 
what people are fighting about in various court cases. I want to displace the narrative that says we have more intellectual property and replace it with one that looks at how different understandings of what IP actually does uh, help us understand current debates. In your book, you mention that it is necessary to recognize that IP is performing a different and new social function, one that requires the rethinking of the kind of power expressed by IP law and regulations. The new social function of IP is basically as an agent of markets and privatization, and that's distinct from what it used to do, which is directly as an agent of sort of the public good. Uh, nowadays, you get the public good is assumed to follow from well-functioning markets, but that's not really the direct goal uh, of IP. Now, we're sort of coached to think this is the way it always was, but the historical evidence really paints a very different picture. Uh, so the 19th century, for example, this is particularly true in parliamentary debates in England, you can see that copyright is perceived as a monopoly, and monopolies are bad because they cause poor quality goods and generally damage the public. And therefore, copyright should have as short a term as possible. Contrast that with now when we say we want property or, or copyright to be a long-term good in order to adequately incentivize the production of goods, uh, even medicine. So in about 1900 or late 1800s, the original patent on insulin was held by University of Toronto And their justification for holding a patent on it was that they needed to be able to curate it and make sure that the insulin that was produced was of high quality, right? So profit and incentives really didn't figure into that conversation. Uh, so these little examples then are the evidence I put together to try to synthesize the story and how the law has changed. In copyright, you can see the priority of owners over the public rights of access. That's probably where it's easiest to see. Uh, the most ready-to-hand example of that would then be the repeated term extension in copyright. Uh, copyright keeps lasting longer and longer. I think a more impressive example is one that sort of gets at what's happening in a more inter interesting way is about fair use, right? So fair use is use that the copyright owner might or might not approve of, but that we allow because we say it's sort of some public good. Uh, quoting literature in order to criticize it, for example, right? The, the owner of the novel does not want to be criticized, but we think that literary criticism or reviewing things is the public benefit. And so their wishes are overruled in that case. So if you think about why we have fair use, so there's a couple of different ways you can go. One way says it's good for the public, right? That's the story I just told. A very different way says, well, we only have fair use because it's not efficient for the people to negotiate a license. Uh, it's, there are various barriers that we get in the way of having a license. If that's the case, then fair use doesn't really have any normative value. What it has is it's an economic holdover where you just put this category there because it's more efficient to say some use is fair than they have licensing regimes. If that's true, then as the technology changes or as social norms change, you would expect to see fair use change. And I think that's what's happening with hip hop sampling in particular. The current legal regime says you ought to have to pay to use snippets of sound in your own work. So take a music genre, uh, particularly late 80s stuff like NWA or Public Enemy, 
that makes an art out of the so-called wall of sound. In Bridgeport music, the Sixth Circuit ruled uh, with the NWA had taken a tiny bit of a guitar riff from George Clinton's Get Off Your Ass and Jam. They looped it, incorporated it into 100 Miles and Run. And you can't tell this there, at least unless you're really well trained and know what you're looking for. And so the question was, should NWA have secured a license to use this, this snippet? It was pretty clearly homage in some sense, right? Clinton's a major figure in P-Funk. Clinton's parliament was important to Dr. Dre and the development of West Coast rap. Uh, so what do you do? As a legal matter, there is sort of three things you could go to. You could decide that, well, it is sampling, but it's de minimis, right? It's below whatever the legal threshold of caring about it is. That would be a very traditional legal view because it invokes a juridical standard to resolve the kind of the policy question. Second route might be to say, well, there is sampling, but there's cultural value what's being produced. There might even be political meaning, right? You can't listen to NWA and miss that there is political content there. And then you say, well, there is sampling, but it's okay, right? So there's a public benefit to it. Third strategy, you say, well, you need a license because creators ought to get paid. The court in Bridgeport, the court in Bridgeport Music basically said the third strategy, right? If you take it, you ought to have to pay for it. What I want to notice, and I, I don't agree with that decision, but what's more interesting to me is that the three different ways you might resolve it correspond to the three different views of power that I see when I read Foucault. Um, what happens here is that you get a particular aesthetic or a particular kind of art transformed by a vision of copyright. And Bridgeport Music, and another case called Grand Upright, basically killed sampling as a form of art, or rather they, they changed how it functioned within art, right? It went from homage and building up a collage into a display of wealth because the only people who could sample or could use samples were those who had lots and lots of money. Uh, to pay all the licensing fees. And as an aside here, I think there's probably also racial politics that should be studied more than I do. Uh, Madonna's Vogue succeeded in the de minimis defense in a way that was not apparently available to late 1980s and early 1990s hip-hop. On that note, what is para-copyright? And how is different from copyright? So para-copyright, which by the way is not my term, I'm sorry to report, uh, refers to Section 1201 of the 1996 Copyright Act, and it does a couple of things. The first is it makes it illegal to circumvent a copyright control apparatus. So think about the, the content control systems on DVDs. And then it secondly makes it illegal to, quote, traffic in code uh, the primary purpose of which is to do that. So you can't either break the copyright scheme or distribute a program that does that for you. This is, I think, very, very different from how copyright has traditionally been conceived because it's not to do directly with creating work. Rather, it's about making sure that those who have direct, already created work are better able to control access to that work. And it does so in a way that is potentially at the expense of public benefit, right? So it exhibits that switch from public-facing to privatized, creator-facing copyright. Uh, some of the early discussions about this 
you know, they talked about how you could use digital rights management e-readers to make it impossible to access versions of text, which is itself in the public domain. Um, the problem here is it forces users into the kinds of consumption that owners want. Uh, in other words, it authorizes any form of digital rights management or access control regime, and copyright owners don't just use that to stop copying, they use it to make sure that you access the world in the way that they like. The easiest example here, if you think about DVDs, they force you to watch the commercials, right? It's very, very hard to bypass the commercials on your average commercial DVD. That is totally different from the way things happen with books, where you don't have to watch a copyright notice, you don't have to watch any other material, you can skip directly to wherever you want. Uh, also, they will use it to meter your meter how much you want something. Again, very different from a book. Once you buy the thing, you can read it, reread it or not as many times as you want. And even if they don't meter it, remember, they can use the apparatus here to chronicle or collect information about how often you read it. So I might have the right to watch the movie, you know, 25 times a day, but no one would know that but for this apparatus wrapped around it. Uh, and there's been a tendency of these techniques to extend. So a lot of the early, early literature about them said, okay, not such a big deal. It'll really be confined to, you know, DVDs maybe and computer programs. Uh, but there's some mission creep that you can observe. So John Deere, for example, the tractor company, has spent a lot of time wrapping various aspects of their, of their products in this digital rights management in order to make it impossible to repair them except the authorized John Deere dealers. And so you hear complaints and protests about the so-called right to tinker. It's about that. Literally, whether or not you have the right to, to open up the hood of your tractor and fix it yourself. Now, there is a procedure for getting exemptions from this. Uh, the initial law wrote in exemptions for computer security, interoperability, things like that. Uh, but even if you assume that you have that right, so you have the right to repair your tractor, or you have the right to make a backup copy of your DVD, that right does not extend to distributing the software to let other people do that. So the only people who are allowed to break the copyright, the, the digital rights management software in the areas they're allowed to do so are those who are able to do that coding on their own. Um, if you step back from it and say, well, what, how does this relate to a narrative about power? It moves copyright away from a goal of maximizing public good and public welfare and towards one that prioritizes the interests of owners, no matter what the public interest is. It simply gives the owners fiat rights over how the public can access their work. And that, I think, is pretty new. And moving on to another topic on IP, trademark. What are the consequences of including the dilution doctrine in trademark law? Trademark dilution is weird. And I think it's one of those things that makes sense really only if you start to see it alongside things like paracopy right. Uh, doing something fundamentally different with trademark and is doing it in a way that prioritizes what content owners want over any notion of a public good. Uh, so traditional copyright is about stopping consumer confusion if you, and incentivizing 
uh, product owners to develop their products. So if you think about um, the Nike swoosh or something, right? If I have the right to use that swoosh and I want to make shoes, I will obviously do so because I can coattail on Nike's reputation for good quality shoes and benefit from that on my own. And any sort of basic theory of market says that's not fair. It will cause markets to function poorly uh, because really manufacturers need a way to differentiate their product from others. Right? So, so far, so good. Delusion, on the other hand, is about protecting brand value even though consumers aren't confused. What Delusion does is say that you're not allowed to use a mark in a non-confusing way or in a different product line if that use would somehow tarnish or otherwise you know, dilute the consumer's associations that they already have with your mark. The case I talk about here is probably the one of those you, you can't make it without cases in law. It's about Victoria's Secret and a sex toy shop called Victor's Little Secret. Uh, the, well, the shop came to the attention of a retired army colonel who wrote Victoria's Secret and said, the shop is trading on your name. And in the subsequent litigation, it was established that in no way was anyone confused about Victoria's Secret and Victor's Little Secret, right? There was no, no consumer would mistake the one for the other. Uh, but Victoria's Secret argued, and after several iterations, including a change in the statute by Congress, they won the argument that association with the, quote, tawdry imagery of Victor's Secret would damage their reputation as a wholesome and sexy, but not sexual, uh, store chain. That's a very, very different understanding of trademark because it doesn't hinge in any way upon the idea that consumers might or might not be confused. Instead, it's about whether the corporate owner of the mark is allowed to control how people understand and what they feel about it and what associations they have uh, with it. And so really it's about protecting and creating a market in brands and not a market in products. Um, notice that this is extremely hard to explain in traditional trademark terms. Uh, but on the other hand, it does make sense if you view intellectual property as being about um, facilitating private good over the, say, public uses of language or the public ability to appropriate or reappropriate terms and just saying we need to be the sorts of people who identify ourselves with brands or mark our identities with brands, right? We're certain, certain brands to indicate what kind of person we are, what our affiliations are, and that that brand ownership is something that should be under the control of the corporations that own the brand. And I think that's probably part of a larger shift in, in capitalism more generally where um, there's increased value associated with brands and with products, but with brands, maybe even less than with individual products, right? So you think about, you know, Hello Kitty is a brand, but it doesn't really have a product that anyone associates with it. Right, everyone thinks of the image, and then they apply that to to lunchboxes. Delusion validates the Hello Kitty view of value in the context of trademark, and in so doing, I think changes the doctrine in a fairly substantial way.
And finally, let's touch a topic that is very up to date, especially this almost year, IP and health. What is the Mother Actuarial Agency and how does it affect public health and patents? So with the term actuarial agency, I was trying to capture something about how we function as patients or as subjects more generally in modern medicine. Uh, the easiest example I can think of is cancer diagnosis. And you think about a classical diagnosis of cancer is when they find a tumor, usually through some sort of imaging. There's a lot of difficulties there. Uh, imaging technologies are getting good enough. They're finding tumors long before we know whether they'll do anything clinically relevant. Uh, in fact, there's autopsy studies. It turns out that when most of us die, our bodies are going to be full of all sorts of little tiny tumors that didn't do anything. Increasingly, imaging technology is able to find those, but we know for a fact, because the autopsy is right, that lots of people will have findable tumors that would never have been clinically relevant for them. Uh, but that's the, that's the debate around traditional forms of cancer diagnosis. You know, when do you start imaging? How sensitive should it be? How worried should you be about false positives? That sort of thing. But now we have uh, a different sort of parallel development, and that treats cancer as a form of risk. And this is something that makes you a very different kind of patient. Uh, the old version said something like smoking increases cancer risk. It was a rough correlation. They were pretty sure it was right, but not everybody said it, and it was very pretty strictly behavioral. The neuro stuff is not just behavioral, but genetic. Uh, the easiest one here is Huntington's disease. There's a very particular mutation that causes it. If you have that mutation, you will get Huntington's disease and die of it. If you don't have the mutation, you won't. Right, so it's a very sort of clean um, genetic marker. A more complicated one, the one I talk about, is the so-called BRCA gene mutation. Uh, and what it does is if you have this particular mutation in that genetic sequence, you're more likely to be, more likely to get either breast or ovarian cancer over the course of your life. So your, li your base average lifetime risk of breast cancer is on the order of 12%. If you have the mutation, it rises like between 50 or 70% by the time you're 80. Um, ovarian cancer, which of course is very difficult to screen for, your risk goes way, 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 way up for that too. Right? So there's a mutation that confers a disease risk. Now, if you have the mutation, then it encourages you to view yourself as what Nicholas Rose calls, calls pre-symptomatically ill. Right? You're not sick. You may not get sick, uh, but there are nonetheless a bunch of medical decisions that you have to make based upon this, this risk portfolio you have. Um, do you have prophylactic surgery to try to reduce your risk? Uh, would you start and have lots and lots of screening? And what's your responsibility in that situation? This is a very different relation to health. One thing it does is it tends to individualize how we think about health. So uh, you don't focus on reducing contagions that are just out there. Uh, you don't even necessarily have a public health initiative against smoking where we say, all right, no smoking indoors, you know, no, no advertising in public places, remove the cigarette machines and the bars. Um, instead, you start thinking, and, or you don't have, say, regulation of air quality or pollution to try to reduce people's sort of environmental risk. 
Instead, people become responsible for managing their own genetic health risk factors. So if I know that I have the BRCA mutation, it's on me to both understand what that means, which is not easy, and understand what to do about it and manage it sort of like a portfolio. And so I call it actuarial in the insurance sense of the word, right? Or maybe you're managing a stock portfolio. You have a whole bunch of possible futures and it's your job to navigate those in the best way possible. And also your problem if it doesn't turn out the way you hoped. So one really interesting aspect of this is it's a place where the Supreme Court has actually pushed back pretty hard against this narrative about the neoliberalization or the, the sort of move of intellectual property away from public biopolitics. Uh, there was litigation around the BRCA gene. It finally ended in 2013, and the Supreme Court said unanimously, in an opinion that Justice Thomas wrote, that isolated genetic sequences could not be patented. Uh, they reasoned that the sequence had the same information in it when isolated as it does in nature, and so this was not an invention so much as moving something around. Um, the decision is kind of a mess, but what I think is interesting is the court really was trying to push back against this idea that you could have a patent regime that supported actuarial agency or the sort of individualized medicine that had been uh, quite frankly, the norm up until then, right? They've been granting patents on genes for 20 years, and the Supreme Court just flat stopped the process uh, when they issued this decision. So it's a really good example, both of a view of power and the view of agency, and how that gets reflected in, you know, legal thinking and efforts at patenting, but also how the legal system is not monolithically moving in one direction. Not it's moving in a direction, but it's not. Monolithic is not without struggle and is not without fighting back. Thank you so much, Gordon, for taking the time to talk about your book, The Biopolitics of Intellectual Property, Regulation, Innovation, and Personhood in the Information Age. And so we come to the end of our episode. See you next Tuesday with a new guest and a new IP topic. Thank you for listening to Intangiblia, the podcast of intangible law. Plain talk about intellectual property. Did you like what we talked today? Please share with your network. Do you want to learn more about intellectual property? Subscribe now on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Visit our website www.intangiblia.com. Copyright Leticia Caminero 2020. All rights reserved. This podcast is provided for information purposes only and should not be considered as legal advice or legal opinion.